Let's pray. Our Father, we feel sad when so much goes wrong in our world. Please counsel us from your word as we read and take it in. And send us home more hopeful about the answer we can cling to in our sadness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to read to you from uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 20. So uh, uh, our uh, Iranian speakers will know uh, where to uh, find it. Uh, We have a Spanish translation. uh, (laughs) And uh, Mitras has that. Darbas, we have... Nothing in Sarani, because the Old Testament hasn't been translated into Sarani. I'm very, very sorry. But you were a great king. So um, we, need, we, need, uh, we need our best. We need our best very much. So uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 20. It's on page 272. And remember I told you about the two guys who neither were the king's friends? Yes? See if you can see that there are two rebels in the story we're reading about, not just one. Your challenge, if you care to accept it. Let me read 2 Samuel chapter 20, page 272. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. And so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. 
And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's left hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And then he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I might speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem.
to the king. But that's what we're going to be looking at in a moment. But first, our children are going to leave for their group and uh, our um, uh, Iranian plus friends, gentlemen, will be going for their Christianity Explained video just around the corner. We'll pause for a moment while they do that. Well, what do you make of that story? Uh, if you've been here uh, week after week going through the story of David, you might just be asking yourself, oh my word, when will it end? When will someone finally be in charge without someone else mucking up the works? We'd love someone to finally take charge and life can get back to normal. And that's true in our country as much as it is true everywhere in the world, as much as it's true in any part of the world at any time in history, including the one we've read about tonight. So, for example, on Thursday we have a big vote about the EU and whether we vote one side or other in the referendum. Those who want us to remain in the EU say, let's remain and then we can play an influential part. We'll be more in charge if we stayed in. Really? Those who say let's leave say we'll be more in charge if we took control for ourselves. Really? Yeah, both sides are going to sell it on being in charge. But are people going to be really in charge? Will they ever be in charge, one way or the other, whichever way we go? Are people ever in charge? That's a question that we can bring to this part of the Bible and ask it as we watch King David and bring the same question to him because he's had someone trying to stop him being in charge and now, once again, chapter 20, and you ask the same question. Here's someone else who wants to take charge. Will it ever end? Well, actually, yes, it will. Tonight. This is the final part of the story of King David's reign. You will see that at the end of chapter 20, you get the different people who are officials in his kingdom. That's a kind of sign-off point at which you will see, okay, now we're going to deal with uh, the end of the kingdom of David. Now, after that, we've still got four chapters. And what do the uh, television people say? Outtakes? Um, when you get a little bit after the, after the main film is finished, you can go and watch some scenes. Are they, are they are called outtakes, aren't they? Yeah, so in the next four chapters, we'll see some important outtakes and we'll study those in the next four weeks. But the story of David, in some ways, ends... Uh, tonight, And we're going to learn from it tonight about uh, two people who rebelled against God's king. Not one, two. Let's meet them in turn. First, uh, you will see Mr. Sheba in uh, verse 1. Oh, there happened to be a worthless man. His name was Sheba, the son of victory. And he blew the trumpet and said, we've got no portion in David we're not going to be ruled by him. 
Here's, if I can put it like this, the new contestant. If you want to know the story so far, the old contestant was David's own son called Absalom, who was a prince who wanted to take over his father David's kingdom. But he's lost. David's got his royal city back. And now you've got this new contender, Sheba, who doesn't want him to be king either. Now, we're meant to see from the very beginning, this is a bit of a loser. Uh, he's called a worthless man. Uh, and uh, we've seen that that is a title applied to losers uh, as you go through uh, the book of Samuel. And in fact, actually, you notice that whenever his name is mentioned, he is such an unknown that they've got to tell you that he is the son of victory. That's the only way they'll ever know him. He's a nobody, and the only way you can identify him is, well, through his dad. Sign of victory is mentioned all the way through. You might have seen me emphasize that as I read it. And he's also actually pretty insulting towards David. He calls David, in verse 1, the son of Jesse. Again, if you've kind of gone through this book, and this is... Uh, uh, you're getting the feel of it, you see that when people talk about David as the son of Jesse rather than as the king, they're putting him down. And uh, they're just saying, oh, he's just another bloke, he's nothing special. So he is a threat. He doesn't want David to be king, and he's certainly got a lot of the country following him. So in verse 2, all the men of Israel withdrew from David. He's got ten tribes on his side, only one tribe is uh, following the tribe of men of Judah, following uh, David. All the rest are following Sheba. Okay, so it's a big movement, and he is a threat. But he's not an urgent threat. Because you see in verse 3 that David comes to his house of, house of Jerusalem, and he takes care of his concubines. Now, you might just look at verse 3 and think, actually it doesn't look like they're getting such a good deal. It looks like actually he's binning them because it says that he uh, uh, put them under guard uh, and shut them up as if they were widows. doesn't look like he's looking after them all that well. But actually, if you look again, you'll see that he is actually caring for women who had been abused by his son. What his son did was to have sex with these ten women as a way of making a statement to the whole country that his father was as good as dead so he could have his wives. So if you'd like, he, he's the one, that's perhaps the reason why he has to treat them like widows because his son had kind of given them widow status. But even as widows, you can see that maybe they have greater security than they did as concubines. And he guards them, which actually means that he's protecting them against other men who might uh, belittle them in the future. That's never going to happen to them again. And I don't think it makes it sound here that they're in isolation. I don't think that's the case. I think it may be that they had each other for company. Maybe they had other female friends who could come to them. But no blokes were going to turn them into their sex toys from now on. 
So I think if you look at verse 3, and you can think that it sounds harsh, but I reckon if we could get those women here to talk to them, they'll say they were really grateful to David that he finally put an end to the way that they have been treated by men in the past. So he does actually come out with compassion to them, but he's still got to be the king and handle the threat. And Sheba, the son of Bikri, is a threat. And in verse 6, he recognizes, David recognizes, that he could be more dangerous than even his son Absalom if he carried on and let this thing fester and grow. And so therefore he puts Amasa in charge of uh, uh, getting the army together to go and pursue him and to stop the rebellion. But then we meet David's second problem. And the second problem is this man called Joab. Now Joab used to be the commander of the army before he gave the job to Amasa. And Joab is a natural leader. So if you look at verse 7, the army is still called Joab's men. And he wants to get David's new appointment out of the way. And that's what happens when the new appointment turns up in verse 8. There they are, the great stone in Gibeah. And Amasa is coming to meet them. He's happy to uh, see that they've already started. But Joab, watch Joab. Tells you something's up the minute you hear him described. Joab was wearing a soldier's garb, in other words... He is fully armed and dangerous. And he's practiced this little, oops, my sword fell out of the the scabbard. He keeps doing that. I'll pick it up in my left hand. I won't put it back because it'll only fall out again. Master, let me give you a kiss to say I'm happy to see you in verse 9. And in the sword goes in verse 10. It just takes one strike. And uh, he is someone who is a pretty efficient killer. We've seen him kill Abner the same way. We've seen him kill Absalom when he wasn't uh, uh, expecting it, when he was unarmed, helpless, in a tree. And now he is the efficient killer of Amasa as well. And uh, uh, there he is, uh, uh, taking over uh, the job of leading the army. Now, there's a nice uh, PR bloke for him on his side in verse 11. And uh, he says, come on, uh, Joab's really uh, uh, doing David's work for him. If you're for David, well, you must be for Joab as well. Uh, Look, uh, King David made a bit of a wrong appointment, but look, don't worry. Uh, That's now sorted out. Uh, We've got Joab back in charge. Game on. Let's uh, complete uh, the job we were given to do, and let's go get Amasa. That's uh, our mission. So he goes off, and he is pretty successful. He gets results. He tracks Sheba to where he's holed up in verse 15 in this uh, town called uh, uh, Abel 
of Beth Maka, wherever that is on the map. And it is interesting that when you get uh, the two sides that were kind of facing each other in this place, both of these men are, if you like, downsized. So Sheba, you'll notice, is no longer as important as he once was. Now, the only people following him in verse 14 are his own family, the other Bichrites. Um, and uh, that's all that he's got on his side. And Joab too is downsized because actually it's not him that sorts it, it's a wise woman who strikes a deal with him so that only one person has to die. And so that happens and he is able to go home and he's once more back home with uh, King David uh, in uh, verse 22 and he's got his own job back and life carries on as normal. But in a very real way, he is as against his king as Sheba was. He knows what his king wants and he's not prepared to live with those rules. He thinks he can do better. But what about uh, the king? Those are the people who are rebellious to the king. What about the king himself? Well, he's still in charge, but if you look, actually, it's not quite as in charge as he was before. Yeah, there's various uh, office holders in uh, verses 23 to 26. Uh, they're described like a whole list of names you get at the end of a film. You know, the ones that with all the technicians and the camera crew and all that sort of thing. In other words, this is such a good film because these were such good guys doing their job properly. It's another way of saying this is such a good kingdom because all these office bearers did their job really well. So you could say God, David is still king and things are running along the right tracks because there's a good team around him and there is order and all the different jobs are being well done and uh, uh, everything is working well. On the one hand you could say yes uh, it is a good kingdom and these people are all there playing their part in it. But in another sense you've got to admit that uh, it's a compromised kingdom. Joab's back in charge of the army, although David didn't want him to be. In verse 23, you can see that Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. So in other words, his influence has got even bigger. No longer is he just commanding Judah. He's now got the whole of Israel uh, uh, under his uh, responsibility. And David is no longer really the person who was the shining uh, king like the Lord Jesus was meant to will be in the future. He is the, the one who failed. He committed adultery, he committed murder, and ever since then the shine's gone out of his kingdom. And now his kingdom is just like any other kingdom in the world, pretty much run by the likes of Joab who throws his weight around and no one's going to stop him. And it is interesting, isn't it, in chapter 20, the last 
story of David's life, God isn't even mentioned, apart from a little throwaway line in verse 19. But he's not really seen to be the person in charge. What can we learn from all of that? It's just another story about human conflict, isn't it? Just like the headlines this week carry one story or another of human conflict. We're in that soup all over again. What can we learn? Well, the first thing to learn, I think, is that uh, the Bible doesn't just simply uh, tell us uh, about things that happen, give us ideas to think about. The way the Bible teaches us is it sets in front of us real live people to show us not just what God is like, but to show us what we are like. And so therefore, if you want to find out uh, what it means to not be a Christian in a very simple way that anyone can understand, it is to simply be like Sheba. Now, I don't mean that uh, all non-Christians are evil, but then Sheba wasn't really evil, was he? He didn't kill anyone, he didn't hurt anybody. He just didn't want David to be king. That's a simple definition of a non-Christian. I don't want Jesus to be king. I'd rather go and do my own thing with my own people, where I want to. That's Bikri, that's, that's uh, Sheba, the son of Bikri. Now, it has to be said, if we're going to learn from this, it's worth learning that that's a bit of a loser thing to do because rebellion against God's king ultimately does end in death of the loser. And we've got to uh, see that. But it doesn't need to end in the death of the loser because Jesus, unlike David, is God's king who invites losers to come back to him. He has room in his kingdom for losers because he has room in his heart for forgiveness and he would therefore love those who have once been against him to come, not just now, but to have eternity in his kingdom. That's the offer of uh, uh, the king, the greater David, David's greater son. So stop being a Sheba and step into the kingdom rather than stay outside it. What happens if you've knocked around church a bit and uh, we might have uh, been in church a bit longer? Uh, it's worth really uh, see how it's easy from Joab to consider ourselves to be servants of the king, to say, yeah, I agree with the Bible, I agree that Jesus is my king, but really, push comes to shove, we aren't submissive to him. So, for example, we can be a bit like Job, can't we? On Sunday, we can come to church and say, yeah, we want Jesus to be king. Monday morning, we can be just like Job, and the boss tells us to do something which we consider to be wrong, and we say no. Uh, I'm going to do it differently because it can be done better than that. And what we miss out, I think, so easy as church people is that we, 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 we think that what God is really looking for is for us to be right. 
when what really honors God is our submission. It's not whether we're right or not, but whether we're submissive or not that counts. Now, try and work out how that might work for you. I've been trying to work out how that might be true for me. And I suppose really what uh, I've um, thought through is uh, I agree with the Bible in the way it tells us to honour our parents. Okay, I agree with that. I fully uh, accept that. But when my mother uh, gets something wrong and tells me to do something that, that really doesn't make sense, I'm not sure I'm submissive at that point. My attitude is more Joab than submitting. I prefer to be right rather than to submit. And you might be able to think of examples like that uh, for you as well. Because the Bible puts Joab in front of us as, if you like, the typical church person who says, I agree, but doesn't actually submit to the will of our king. What if you're a real believer and you're in despair as you look at the headlines this week and you see that the rebellion against God seems to be everywhere, in Orlando, in Europe, on the football terraces, uh, on uh, the streets, uh, even MPs are not safe. What is there for us to remember out of this whole story? especially as we see that David's kingdom is no different. Well, surely what we've learnt from the book of 1 and 2 Samuel as we've put them together is to see that the one thing that God wants us to do when we look at a kingdom like this and see it, a pale, pale reflection of the kingdom of Jesus, which it looks forward to, surely the great draw for us is to pray your kingdom come. That should be our passionate plea every time we come uh, face to face with uh, the rebellion against God's king in our world. We don't want a kingdom like this. We want a kingdom where the king is in charge. We've wonderfully been given a prayer Pray your kingdom will come. There is an outlet to our depression when these sad things happen. But that's not the only thing. While we're praying that prayer, it is also the king's work to look after the casualties, like David looked after the concubines. Because rebellion always hurts other people. And part of our submission to our king is to care like him. And so we want to, to pray for his kingdom to come, but while we're praying, we don't just simply stand there with our hands helpless. We want to serve with deep compassion the ones who are hurt, like the concubines of this story, and to provide for them, to protect them, and to care for them the way that uh, David did. So yes, pray for God's kingdom to come, but remember, let's also pray that his will will be done on earth 
in that way as we wait for heaven. Well, let's uh, uh, stop there and uh, let's um, maybe think through uh, areas of this story that uh, come uh, that, that might help you learn uh, and take home. And so uh, let's have a moment where we just pray quietly and then I'll pray together. And then we'll have questions and answers after that. Well, let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we're humbled when we see that uh, men like uh, Sheba and Joab are like mirrors uh, there to show us what we're like. And we want all rebellion against the Lord Jesus to end. And that includes our own uh, lack of uh, submission and uh, our resistance to him. So please, may his kingdom come when the king is fully obeyed. And please, use this time before he returns to turn us into people like him, filled with his compassion, providing and protecting those who are the casualties of a very sinful world. And we pray that for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen.